Well, let's get started, guys. I hope you uh, downloaded either the notes on your phone or none of you has a laptop or anything like that. But if you didn't, just listen, because what I want to do is I want to review a couple of the introductory comments, because those introductory pages are really important uh, to lay the groundwork for studying Ecclesiastes. If you're not familiar with the stuff I want to cover, the book is not going to make, because when we start reading, the book is not going to make a lot of sense if you don't know up front what Solomon's trying to do. Because as you're going to see, he makes an assumption 29 times in the book. He will use the phrase, under the sun. And as, as Solomon is going through this, he's saying, you know, if the box is closed, there's not a God beyond the physical world. I can't make sense of anything. And so he will write, it's right at the beginning in verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you read this and you say, well, what does that mean? Because when was the last time you heard somebody use vanity in a sentence? We don't talk like that. So we, gotta, we have to take this, the Hebrew word is haleb, but we will look at that next week. What does he mean by that? Because he keeps using that word throughout the book. Vanity, vanity of vanity. He'll search something out, he'll reach a conclusion, this is all vanity. And so we're going to search for a good synonym for that in English. I'm going to suggest something like meaningless, useless, or flashing. It doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense to me. And Solomon's the wisest, most brilliant man who ever lived. And so what Solomon is going to do is he's going to say, if the box is closed, and that's the metaphor I want to use, if there's nothing beyond the physical world, if the physical world is all there is, Nothing makes sense. And he's going to prove that. And that, that's why, to, to, to me, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the, it's a 3,000-year-old book, but it's one of the most relevant books for the 21st century. Because there are people that you rub shoulders with or you know that your kids or grandkids know. That's exactly how they're living their life. As if the box is closed. That there's nothing transcendent beyond the physical world. So all I'm doing is living for the moment. And Solomon will say this. I, what I might as well do is I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. And, and, you know, at one level, if the box is closed, that is, that is the ethic we should follow for our life. If there's no God and there's no accountability, then why should I be righteous? If there's no God and there's no accountability, why should I work hard? He will write, I was a very wise investor. I have a tremendous fortune, and I'm about to die, and I'm going to give it to my kids who are a bunch of fools. Why did I do this, he asks. And he, I mean, he will go through, he will go scenario after scenario after scenario about life, and he will say, if the box is closed, this doesn't make sense. Why do I do this? Why work so hard? And he compares the fool, wise person and the fool. Wise person, using some of these words, wise person is careful, is very discerning. Wise person is very, very, very good steward of their resources, a very good steward of their time. And the fool, who is none of that, but he says, you know what? They're both going to die. He said, why should I be wise? I might, I might as well just eat, drink, and be married because we're both going to die. And, you know, if the box is closed and there's no God and there's no accountability, I think that's a piercing question. So 
all true, but it's still good to make. You don't want a bunch of broken arms. They hurt. Well, that that yeah, the atheists of our guy can do some good things to avoid some of the other bad things. Yes, like a broken arm over and over and over. Yes, yeah, and I mean that gets that gets to another thing he brings up, which is the issue of motivation. Why do you do what you do? But ultimately, it is that question that is so valuable for us in 20, 2022, soon to be 2023. If there is no, if the, like I, if the box is closed, really, seriously, let's be, let's be as intellectually honest as we possibly can. Doesn't it really make sense to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? Enjoy life to its fullest, indulge, because you're going to die. That's the that's one of the questions that Paul, Paul, excuse me, Solomon is is asking. Ultimately, the bottom line: why be wise? But if there is a God, and there is accountability. And answering all those questions is going to be very, very different. And that's what he proved. And that's why it's such a valuable book. I, I've taught it many times, and I hope it'll be it'll be reliable for you and it's and helpful for you. But also, it's something to pass on. This is what we want our kids to understand and our grandkids to understand. It matters how you live your life. Because the box is not closed. Because the box is not closed. This is what at the very last verse of, of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, the very last verse is we all must give an account to God. It's kind of important. On the first page of the, of the outline uh, packet is a synthetic chart of the book, which is Swindoll's. And then the second one is another way in which to analyze and look at the book. Uh, so you can look at these. I will refer to this one particularly a number of times in the weeks to come. So that again is up to you what you want to do with that, but I've given it to you. If you look at page two, I want to make, I'm not going to read all of this to you, but I want to highlight some of the things in this. In the introduction, I just give you a little bit of uh, a couple of pieces of information. The term Ecclesiastes is from a Greek word, because remember about 250 BC, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. It's what's called the Septuagint, if you're familiar with that, if you're not, don't worry about it. But the word Ecclesiastes is translating a Greek word, which means assembly, because the writer is writing this to the assembly, to Israel. So hence, the when, when they gave a title to it, 250 BC, they used that Greek word. Secondly, the author of the book calls himself preacher. And you'll see that. It, it, you see it right away, the words of the preacher. The Hebrew word is koalat. And that's, that's why it's hard to know how to translate that. And so the question is, who is this preacher? Because again, in the, in the ancient world, that was not a typical term used. Uh, sometimes prophet was used, sometimes teacher was used. But this is, a, it, he identifies himself as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And so those two things narrow it a little bit. Because son of David... David had one son who was the king. Who was that? Solomon. Solomon. He, had, he had many sons, but he had one son who would become the king, and that was Solomon. And so generally the consensus is, although always there are people who disagree, 
generally the consensus is this is Solomon. Now you can read through the, the, uh, the other introductory material, but Solomon, Solomon became king in 971 BC and died in 931 BC. So the, the general idea is that he's writing this book at the end of his life. He's reflecting on his life. He's reflecting on the choices he's made. And there's a lot more I wanna say about this. Number one, under the introduction, once we're through that material, is why is this such an important book? Because, and this is really, this is really significant because Solomon will use this phrase over and over again in the book, under the sun. And that's S-U, under the sun. And what he is assuming is this. I am writing my book as if this is a closed box universe, a closed box world. In other words, in, in a very real sense, what Solomon is saying, I live most of my life without having God involved in it. I made decisions without God involved. Although you remember, you read this in the early part of First Kings, when he was named to be the king, there was some challenge to that. When he was finally named to be the king, he asked God for the greatest thing for wisdom. I need wisdom. I don't know how to do this. I'm a young man. I don't know how to rule. I don't know how to make decisions. And so God gave him the wisdom. So the question is, did Solomon utilize that wisdom? Early on, you see it. And remember the, the, the two prostitutes that come to him and one of the children had died. The other one still hasn't. And he has to decide which one's a real mother. And the wise way and true way which helps them make that decision. The evidence is that wisdom. But for the most part, Solomon did not rule wisely. And so what he says is, I'm living my life under the subject 29 times in the world. I'm living my life as if God doesn't exist. I'm living my life as if there's nothing beyond the physical world. Really important. And it's really important because that, that to me makes this book really relevant 2022. <laughs> Because many, many, many people today that you rub shoulders with, that you know, or that your children and grandchildren know, are living their lives as if it's a closed box universe. There's nothing beyond the physical. Or another way of saying it, the physical world is all there is. And what Solomon is saying, if you live your life that way, here are the consequences and results. And he's going to test that thesis throughout this book. And that's why it is, I, I love to teach Ecclesiastes. I think it's one of the most important books in the Bible, Simply, especially for our world, because all around us are people, even if they say, I'm a Christian or whatever, identify themselves. They're basically living their life as if God isn't in it. As if it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what God's view on things is. I'm going to live my life my way. Remember Frank Sinatra's, that famous song, My Way, I Did It My Way. That is a perfect illustration of what Solomon's talking about. You're going to live your life and make your decisions. You're, you're going to prioritize things in your life. You're going to decide what's important without even considering what God says. And he is going to detail the consequences of this in his own life. He's going to draw conclusions that make this really, really relevant for us in 2022. Doesn't seem to be a very happy person. He's kind of depressed or bummed out or something. That's that's right. 
That's right. And I often say to people, don't read Ecclesiastes if you're having a down day, if you're depressed. <laughs> don't read Ecclesiastes because it's not going it, to, it will at time, but for the most part, it's not going to give you a lot of hope. It's not going to, it's not going to exhilarate you, but it will if you're reading it honestly, because it helps you to understand. But I don't live in a closed box anymore. The box is open. There is a God. There's something beyond the physical world. He's revealed himself to me. I know about him. And so you learn, and that's exactly what Solomon was trying to do. We learn by negative example. Because the things that he says at the beginning of the book are just astonishingly relevant to Dr. Plato. Tim, why do you think it took him so long to come to this conclusion after You know, at one sense, I, I don't really know if I can answer that, but uh, because I, I don't walk in his shoes. But I think part of what Solomon did is what many, many people do in their lives. You begin something, you have a significant amount of success in what you're doing, and that success and whatever success is defined for you, it could be successful business, it could be successful education, whatever it is, you, you really get to, you know, I really did this. I, I really did this on my own. I, I, I worked hard. This is mine. And so Solomon was like that. He had tremendous success. Uh, he, his father did all the military aspect. Solomon was not a military ruler. He didn't fight many battles because his father neutralized everything around him. What Solomon does is he builds a successful economic nation. He controls all the trade routes. And then he ex begins to, in this enormous building program of his. And I, that, we'll talk a little bit about that as he, as he illustrates these things in the book. And I think you, you achieve success like that. Success and achievement and reaching your goals doesn't make you dependent on God. It makes you independent. I, I should say it this way. It can make you independent. I, you know, okay, I'll still tip my hat at God on the Sabbath. I'll still take the sacrifices to God and in the annual or monthly or whatever the different things are. But, you know, I really am. God, I got this. I can handle this, Lord. I'll see you on the Sabbath. Now, I mean, it's, I, that's ridiculous, obviously, when, but it, it, that's the way he lived his life. And the more success he had, the less dependent he was. And he did a second thing, which was an absolute catastrophe. This is very early in, in First Kings, or excuse me, yeah, in First Kings. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh, and he builds an enormous home for her on Temple Mount. The ruins of it um, we found, but anyway... And, and so he, he does all these things, which is a tremendous alliance for the country. To now be a lot, because you meant marriages in the ancient world were political marriages. He didn't really love her. It was political marriage, but it was to the, and then, then he started marrying wives of other surrounding uh, nations, if you want to call them, Edom, Edomites, Moabites, and so on. And each time he marries one of these, he builds a temple for her. If you stand on Temple Mount today, if you were to go with me, I'd stand on Temple Mount, and we look to the southeast, you see that what's called the hill of abominations. That's where Solomon built all the temples of these other gods. And as he does this, it's successful diplomacy. And he's doing everything God told him not to do, but he's having success. And it's not until he gets to the end of his life when these, start, these things start to collapse. And he sees 
the consequences of what he did. And he looks back on his life and he keeps asking this question, why did I do this? Why did I amass all this wealth? Why, why was I wise in all my investments? Why did I build all these things? I'm nearing the end of my life. And he keeps saying, I'm going to pass it off to my children. And they're, they're foolish. <laughs> so I worked hard, but why did I do this? And he says, you know, why should I be wise? Because I look at the fool who was not wise, and I realize something. We both will meet exactly the same end. What's that? Yeah. We're going to die. And so he says, why was I wise? What I should have done was eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I die. Now, this, I mean, to me, that sounds, that resonates with what I see and hear about people today. That's how they're living their lives. They don't live and plan for the next 40 years. And I mean, some do, but generally speaking, they live for tomorrow. And that's it. They live for the moment. And that's especially true of teenagers and often young adults. Now, again, I'm speaking in broad stroke statements. So this book grabs people. Because when they start reading some of this, you say, that's me. I was teaching this in another class, and I had one of the wealthiest men in almost in the class come up to me and said, Jim, this is exactly where I am. I need to hear this. Because he said, I've been thinking through. I mean, he is a believer, but I've been thinking through why Am I doing all that I'm doing? And so we, we had quite a conversation about that. So you talk about the statistics in the society that, and I have a hard time believing that 60% of the people are still live paycheck to paycheck. They're doing just, it's hard for me to believe that six, that's millions of people. That's right. Live paycheck. I've lived that way my whole life, still here. <laughs> but the point is, they're not thinking past. That's right. The next, nothing past the moment. It's, the moment. it's, it's, and with all that's happened in our society with, you know, plastic money, the, 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 the credit card, you can do that. You can do that for quite a while, actually. So whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And, and, but there's going to come a point where, you know, you can only max out about five or six cards and probably you're not going to be able to get another card. So then all of a sudden, so then you declare bankruptcy and start all over again. Is this the same gentleman who said I've been leaning my ladder? No, no. So there was more than one. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the bottom of the second page, I, I gave you a third page. I gave you a little chart uh, from just some of the big ideas, and that's just a quick synopsis. And you can you can look at that. We're going to be highlighting a number of those things. But look at the bottom of page three. How do I apply this? There's a marvelous quote from Chuck Swindoll that I'm quoting here. Quote, we all desire meaning in life. Often that search takes us along winding up and down paths filled with bursts of satisfaction that shine bright for a time, but eventually fade. In one sense, it's satisfying to see that experience echoed through the Ecclesiastes. An appreciation for our common humanity emerges from reading its pages. We relate to the journey of Solomon because for many of us, it's our own. We attempt to find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure, the commitment to a job, through plumbing intellectual depths, we all eventually find in each of these pursuits a dead end. Now, this none of you—I'm the oldest person in this room—said so none of you remember. That. There was a there was a there was a song in the <laughs> '60s by a, a, a British group that said, "I can't get no satisfaction." Yeah. Do any of you recall that? Oh yeah. 
in my mind, I'm now singing. I'll sing it for the rest of the day. But you know that the Rolling Stones are the ones who put that out. I think initially, but that captures it. I can't get no satisfaction. And he goes through in that ridiculous song, but the lyrics, he just points out exactly the same thing Solomon's saying. I do this, I can't get satisfied. I do this, and this, I can't get satisfied. I do this, I can't get satisfied. It's exactly what Solomon's going to say doing. Everything I try does not bring meaning and purpose to my life. Unless the box is open. Because what he's going to do is he works through this. Should I enjoy my job? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. This is exactly what he said. He says it's hard for him, though. That God will give me the joy in my work. God will give me the joy, and this is what he keeps saying. He says the joy of the Lord is a gift, so that I can enjoy the good things He gives me. That's what. And so it's that kind of, if the box isn't closed, this is what he's going to say. Then everything I have is from God. Therefore, everything I have is to be enjoyed to the glory of God. What a different perspective on life. But Solomon, it takes him a while to reach that point. And continuing, this is continuing Swindoll's quote at the top of page four. Ecclesiastes shows us a man who lived through this process and came out on the other end a wiser, more seasoned perspective. When we're surrounded by the temptation to proclaim life's ultimate emptiness, we find in Ecclesiastes a vision tempered by experience and ultimately seen through divinely colored lenses. Life is destined to remain unsatisfactory or unsatisfying, excuse me, apart from our recognition of God's intervention. It only remains to be seen whether or not we place our trust in his sure and able hands. And his there is a pronoun meaning God's sure and able, uh, able hands. So I'm asking one more question before we dig into the book. It's number four. Why does Ecclesiastes paint such a dark picture of life? Why is it dark? Because I said that if you are depressed and down, it's probably not a good time to read Ecclesiastes. Why do there appear to be such doom and gloom? Even apparent contradictions. Four things I want to say. Solomon demonstrates that life without God has no meaning. Earthly goals as ends in themselves lead dissatisfaction and emptiness. Solomon shocks us into seeing life and death strictly from ground level and into reaching the only conclusion from that standpoint that intellectual honesty permits. I hope you understand that last sentence. If the box is closed, then what he's saying is right. This is an empty, meaningless life. And that's the struggle for the atheist, if the atheist is intellectually honest. Because ultimately, the atheist means that when you die, nothing, you're done. There's no life after that. So the atheist is pressed with that point. Why should I live? I mean, I should just be like a foolish person and live for the moment. Well, we'll talk more about that. Second, such much in life cannot be fully understood. That's absolutely true. There's so much we cannot understand about life. We must live by faith, not sight which sounds like the New Testament. Humans are not in control, for life is filled with unexplained enigmas, unresolved anomalies, and uncorrected injustices. Solomon affirms human finiteness, and that much of life is a mystery. Life can not only be horizontal, there must be a vertical dimension to life, and that's what he keeps pressing. 
Thirdly, life under the sun, as I mentioned here on the board, cannot provide accurate and exhaustive answers if this is a closed box universe. If there's nothing beyond the physical, and all is futile, empty, and meaningless. The only answer that provides meaning to life, bullet number four, is fear to fear God and enjoy one's lot. On their own, humans find life empty, frustrating, mysterious. When God is in the picture, the box is not closed. Emptiness becomes fulfillment. Frustration becomes contentment. And the mysterious becomes the awe-inspiring, even if there's no exhaustive understanding. I don't know. That's a great sentence. <laughs> Read it again. I'm not boasting here, but that's a no, good sentence. Okay. On their own, humans find life empty, frustrating, mysterious. When God is in the picture, the box is closed. Emptiness becomes fulfillment. Frustration becomes contentment. And the mysterious becomes the awe-inspiring, even if there is not exhaustive understanding. In my own personal life and walk with God, that's why I wrote it the way I wrote it. That absolutely is true. I've studied my, all my life. I mean, you know, both academically and all that I've done studying for stat classes like this. I've studied scriptures for 37 and a half years. And there's so much I still, I don't get it. I still don't understand it. So it's still mysterious. But it leads me to this proposition. There is a God who understands it all. And he is working his plan, his big mega plan of redemption and rescuing human race from sin, but also in my own life. Now I have to trust him. Because I know one thing, he knows the future, I don't. So if he's asked me to do something now, I faithfully do it, trusting him for the future. And this is what Solomon's going to come to. There's one more thing I want to do, and that is just review real quickly with you, and I, I'm going to do only this in summary. I've reprinted in your notes there, in, at the bottom of page four and top of page five, I reprinted Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. And I, I'm not going to read all this, but so this is when you ought to read that. Here's, here's Moses. The, the second generation of Israel is about the end of the promised land. And that's when, that's when Moses writes Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy is a Greek word which means second law. It's the reiteration of virtually everything that's in, in Leviticus and parts of Numbers. And so he gets to chapter 17. And he says, listen, there's going to be a time when God's going to want you to have a king. Which is really interesting because it shows us that God's intent always was for Israel to have a king. But he says there are three requirements, exclusion, there are really four, four requirements. Requirement number one, this king is not to go down to Egypt and secure horses and build a strong military. Second, this king is not to take many wives for himself. Third, this king is not to amass excessive amounts of gold and silver. And fourth, this king is to immerse himself in God's word. If you follow me very quickly, as I briefly reviewed that, where was Solomon in all four of those things? <laughs> he went down to Egypt and amassed a massive army with a huge number of horses. He built three big chariot cities, one in Gezer, one in Megiddo, and one in Tzor. When we go to Israel, we visit the one at Megiddo, and we see the enormous chariot city that he built. Number two, did he take many foreign wives? <laughs> yes. And I told you, he built temples to their gods. Number three, did he amass an excessive amount of silver and gold? Absolutely. He was the richest man at that time, probably in the whole world. 
So amassed was his wealth, and known that Queen of Sheba, which would be modern day Yemen, traveled all the way up the Arabian Peninsula to see it. Is this really true? I can't believe what I'm hearing about that he did. Did he immerse himself in the word of God? Not initially. So the tragedy of Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, he had clearly in scripture what he was supposed to do as the king, but he didn't do it. And so he had to live with the consequences. I do not believe that you would write an epitaph over Solomon's tomb. Here's a man who walked with God. You would write that over his father's tomb. He was a man after God's own heart. And even though he sinned and, and failed a number of times, it was a contrite, broken spirit. He always came back to God. Solomon is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. He really is. He asked God for the right thing, wisdom. God granted it. But if you don't use wisdom, you are what the Bible calls a fool. So in effect, Solomon was the most foolish man who ever lived because he had everything. All right, Rob, you had a question. Thank you, just answering that question. How did you well, get the reputation for being the wisest man in the world when he was so biblically foolish? I, I can anticipate an answer, but I'd like to hear you. Well, it, it depends. If humans are evaluating Solomon, they would say he's really a great wise man. God evaluated him, he's a fool. So in the closed box, he was yes. really good. Yes. Because this is this is the way walking with God. Is stuff that God told him to write down is right here. But it's at the it's but it's at the end of his life. Well, I mean, his, his, how many people you know have their their life story in the Holy Scriptures? Yes. So, but his question was relating to well, yeah. He he lived his life yeah. in a foolish way. It's at the end of his life. Well, the last two verses kind of turn it around. Yeah. I think well, just the impression. Well, yeah. From a worldly perspective, he was very. That's right. Well, and I mean, he, uh, this was the golden age of Israel's history. Solomon's rule is the golden age of Israel. Because when Solomon dies in 931, what happens to his kingdom? It splits into part. So, I mean, from then on, it's just a downward spiral goes. It just gets worse. But it's the golden age. And there's, um, I mean, when you study it, from the perspective of secular history, Israel was one of the most powerful nations and richest nations, paralleling Egypt and what was going on in Mesopotamian Valley at that time, as well as northward, what was called the Hittites. But Israel is incredibly important kingdom. Very, they dominated the Eastern Mediterranean world. But as soon as, and, and Solomon virtually bankrupt the country with his building program. And then with the building program, he enslaved so many people. Well, that's not the right word. He forced so many people to work and he taxed them so heavily that when he died, they went to his successor, Rehoboam, his son, and said, oh, please release the taxation policies 
and stop the conscription of our sons into your, into your army and into your workforce. And you remember what Rehoboam said? I'll double it. And I mean, you know, that's what led to the rebellion of Jeroboam, tragically, but that's another story. So Solomon is, is an immensely tragic figure, but the benefit of Solomon is he wrote this book and he wrote the book of Proverbs. And they're all reflections on what he's learned. So that's positive. Did he learn the lessons? Yes, but he paid a dear price for it, both personally and in terms of his kingdom. He destroyed his kingdom. The, the country of Israel it leads to a destructive path because of the decision Solomon made. Now, that does not do away with the accountability of each one of the following kings. That's not what I'm saying. But he set the nation on a downwards. It's a tragic story in that sense. So real quick before you move, because Absolutely. you touched it. I have a note here that says, following the lead of Martin Luther, many people abandoned the traditional view that Solomon wrote this book. Why did people abandon that, the view? Luther was an anti-Semite. In a big way. Well, I I would uh, I would challenge that a little bit. In other words, uh, he he was he did reflect what was very typical in late medieval Europe, uh, the view that um, that the Jews are Christ killers. That was the phrase that was used. Anti-Semite. That's correct. But uh, and now, look, I don't want to argue with you on this, no, but there's argue. a lot there's a lot about Luther that also needs to understand balance. He was very committed, very committed to the proposition of evangelizing the Jews to reach out to the Jews and tell them the gospel story. Through salvation with grace. He is not. He is not interested in killing the Jews. Go ahead and say that. Well, but you know, you, you can call. Okay, okay. That just the authorship. I was just curious. Why did they? Well, I think some of it has to do with the image of Solomon as a wise man reading the Proverbs. This can't be the Solomon, the son of David, because the the, the term, the name, proper name, Solomon is not used. It's preacher, son of David, king of okay. Jerusalem. And it's just, and, and the way in which he talks about things historically, it all fits with this time frame in Israel's history. But it's that this can't be Solomon. It, this can't be. It has to be another one of the kings later on in Judah. But the, the problem is then who is it? I mean, who are you gonna who are you gonna choose? Maybe Asa, maybe Jehoshaphat, maybe Hezekiah, maybe Josiah, but that's about it. You don't have to, you're not gonna choose Manasseh. You know, if you remember that, he was one of the worst kings of Israel Judah ever had. He saw it Isaiah in half. I mean, he was a terrible king. So that's the thing. Uh, Bill, if, you, if it isn't Solomon, then who is it? Because you don't have the way in which he talks and the way in which he explains things, it seems to fit only him. Okay. No one, no one engaged in the building program. He talks a lot about he talks about his building. Nobody engaged in a building program like Solomon. Nobody did. <laughs> so it's just it it just it it almost gets to the point. If it isn't Solomon, who is it? And if it isn't anybody else, you come back, it's probably Solomon. Yeah, I'm not going to die for that bill. Well, and again, the but, people that wrote this yeah. are in why Martin Luther would think that, you know. But I think it, it has to do with how he looked at what, you know, Solomon writing the Proverbs and some of the reflections. It can't be Solomon. It's got to be somebody else. It's got to be another Jewish leader who's king. 
can't be solved. All right, 20 after, let's get started. We're now gonna look at the book. So you guys online, if you don't have your notes, we're now gonna turn to the Bible. But I wanted to lay out some of those prefatory notes. I hope they're helpful. If they're not, just use them to light your fire this winter, if we ever have winter here in Omaha. <laughs> Jim Rowe, uh, quick. When did he die? This was. Uh, he died 931 BC. 931. Yeah. He became king in 971 BC. He ruled for 40 years. The words of the preacher, again, that the Hebrew is koalat, which doesn't mean anything to you today, but it's a really difficult proper noun to translate. Koalat. So, most translate. I think I don't know what all translations we have. Mine says teacher. Teacher. Okay. Preacher or teacher is a normal way to translate that. The son of David, the king in Jerusalem. So, I mean, right there, it narrows it. It whoever this is has to be in the Davidic line, and number two has to be the king, king of Judah, king of Judah. So you you're not going to be talking about any of the kings of the north. Now, that's an apostate kingdom anyway. So it's it's got to be one of the kings of Judah. And, you know, that's from here, 930, when Solomon was ruling, 931, he dies through 586 B.C. when, when Judah is, is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and so on. And you look at that, you don't have a lot of choices. <laughs> I highlighted four, maybe five at the most other possibilities. But if you're okay with this, I mean, as I said, I'm going to go with this is Solomon. I'm going to go with this is Solomon, okay? Now, here's the thesis of the book. Verse 2 is the thesis. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, the word that's translated vanity is the, the Hebrew word havel, H-E-B-E-L. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's a very difficult word to translate. Because, I, I, again, I think most of your translations have it, vanity of vanities. This is but, meaningless. Okay, does it? What, what do you have, NIV? Or what do you no, this is Rari, New International. Yeah, NIV. Okay, New International. Yes. That's that's a good. I like that. That's the translation I prefer. Meaningless. But it, it can mean empty. It can mean void. So it's 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 like a it's like a comment on something. Because when you and I here, I mean, I'm pretty sure this is true. I bet none of you have has heard the word vanity used in a sentence in the last 15 years. <laughs> Nobody talks like that. You know, vanity. I mean, that's kind of a Victorian word. It was used in England in the 19th century. So what, it, what does it mean? The, the word habel is a word that tries to capture something that's void, meaningless, or purposeless. So... Well... <laughs> I mean, uh, speaking in the common language. Okay. You don't use vanity. Yeah. You can use that word and come across. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't use that, but no, uh, but, yeah. uh, but it's it's the idea that whatever I'm looking at, whatever I'm thinking about, whatever I observe about my life, I'm going to say meaningless, purposeless, void. Which is really extraordinary, isn't it? To make a statement like that. Because this is what he's going to be talking about. It isn't because he didn't have wealth. It isn't because he wasn't smart and intelligent. He will tell us what he did in his studies. It isn't, it isn't that he didn't have power. 
I mean, all of the things that, generally speaking, Americans consider to be important and of value, he had. He had wealth, he had position and power, he had influence. I mean, all of the things that most people say, that's a successful person. Solomon had it. And yet he says, I look at everything, and I say, but it's because for him, he's looking at, he doesn't, he's not going to, he doesn't believe this. But for much of his life, this is how he lived his life. The box is closed. I'm living my life as if there is no God. I'm living my life as if there's no accountability God. I'm living my life as if what I do has no eternal significance. Now that last sentence that I just uttered, I want to review that with you. Do you believe that everything you do is eternally significant? One way or another, yeah. So I'm not sure I believe everything I do is I'm I'm coming to that, but I, I, I'm with you on that. I'm not sure that if I buy a new car that has eternal significance, okay, I have a car. <laughs> but I have plenty to do other stuff with. I have plenty to give the church. I have plenty to do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. So I have a hard time believing that. It doesn't have to be a car. It can be yeah. any possession. I went out and bought a new toaster. I have a hard time believing that toaster has eternal Do you look at everything that you do and everything you say and everything as a stewardship from God? Yeah, but we don't. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm saying, I said, should, this, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging. Do you look at everything you do as having eternal significance? Not on not as I'm doing stuff, but when you step back and look, yeah. Rob, you were. I I, I I believe I do now. Do I do it consistently every day? I don't know. One of the things that, that did inspire me to attempt to do that was um, my late wife, her father, well, came from a farm family. He had his own farms. And I remember both my wife and her mother, the way was alive, remark about how her father lived, treated the land, even though he owned it, he, he treated it as He's a steward of that land. And they made a big point of that. And that stuck with me all my life. Mm -hmm. That's something to aspire to. <laughs> I can't claim to have done it, but that's that's uh, that's profound, actually. I mean, that's that's an enriching comment that that you're sharing with us because, I mean, I've known a lot of farmers in my life when I was in leadership. I travel a lot. And I was with a lot of farmers, and most farmers, like that's exactly how they looked at a sacredness to the land and a sacredness to what they were doing with the land. Um, and that there's something there that is enriching to be around people like that. And I think one of the things that is challenging in the postmodern world in which we live is most people do not see it. They don't see their lives, they don't see anything they have or anything they do as eternally significant. Just as with a lot of stuff, we make us throw away stuff. Like the land's there forever, but my toaster's going to go in the trash here in a few weeks. But, I mean, the metal will still be where they came out of the ground. I, I have, you know, I, I'm going to have to say maybe I, I'm an no on every single decision 
Well, still have this the, poor little toaster. I don't know what to do with. On the on the speaking of significance, everything having eternal significance in the last couple of verses in this book, the God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So everything we do has eternal significance. And I agree with that, but I don't agree that toaster fits into that. I mean, I, well, it's it's, it's the you know I, again that's 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 fascinating you bring that up, but it is it is an important part of of uh, our stewardship, the stewardship of our home, the stewardship of the material things. It's okay. It, it, an eternally significant decision is a decision a decision that reflects wise stewardship. And so that's for you. I mean, you're, you're, you're quite, that's a great, that's a great illustration of that, but it's just, Bill, you're going to buy a toaster, you know, I, this is good, but let me, do you pray about that? I mean, I don't think any of us, Lord, I need to buy a toaster. So Lord, help me now, you know, but I, you know, you know, my wife will do that. That's exactly what Peggy does. She has to buy a toaster. She will say, Lord, help me to make the decision, the best toaster for what I can afford. I don't, that's not how I live. That's not how I do it. I don't do it like that. No, but I do but believe it, God's given us a brain to okay. use and sort yeah, out and that it. we, so, with the intelligence he's given us, will make a good choice. So stewardship, stewardship, because listen, when God, this is how Solomon will talk. This is how, when God gives you something, you say, well, I earned it. I worked. No, yes. But he gave you a job. He gave you the opportunity to work. He gave you the health to work. So God is enabling you to do this. So God gave this to you. So then it's it becomes this is an issue of stewardship and everything. There's a stewardship of our time, there's a stewardship of our wealth, there's a stewardship of our property, there's a stewardship of our bodies. So I would ask you this: is brushing your teeth an eternally significant event in your morning life? Yes. Yes, it is. That's stewardship of your body. And put the cap to <laughs> Will you remember that? Then more than that, I need my teeth. But I mean, it's, you see, this is how God wants us to look, because listen, when you go back and read ancient Israel, and you read the Levitical, there's incredibly boring, hard chapters. The whole point of Leviticus is everything you do in life, you're to think about me. God gives instruction on how to make your clothing. Why in the world does he do that? So that when you're making your clothing, you're thinking about him. Why does he give those extremely detailed kosher food laws? So that everything you're doing, you're thinking about him. Because the pagan world all around them, that's not how they live. You are my people. I've selected you to be my covenant people. Now, here is how you are going to show the rest of the world what it means to live under my authority and love for you as my covenant people. This is what Solomon should have known. But he didn't live his life that way until near the end. So we are beneficiaries of that. We learn from the mistakes he made so that we will not make those mistakes. Now, don't you think he knew that going through it, but he was just on his way to A, B, and C, and he never really came to grips with that until perhaps the end. We need to look back. Yes, yes. And this is, he is reflecting on what he did and what he learned. And that's why in that one chart that I gave you at the beginning, the, the, the first part is a lot of his analysis. He doesn't get to the solution till the end. He's analyzing this thesis, vanity, vanity. He's analyzing, how did I reach this conclusion? 
And it's not till the end where he makes those three concluding points, as you just read from. Fear God, obey his commandments, because everything you do, you're accountable to him. That's the summary of the last two verses of the book. Rob, did you have your hand up again? No. Oh, I thought you did. All right. So far, we've gotten one verse done. <laughs> can we see if we can go on now? What he does is, okay, why, how did I start down this path of reaching this conclusion? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He gives a series, and your notes reflect this, but he gives a series of observation points. What does, this is verse three now. So evidence, number one, piece of evidence, number one. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's that phrase again. So he's asking, he's asking that, that very penetrating question. Human labor, work, what you do. From the vantage point of, a, of eternity, as well as time, what does the man gain by all his toil? He supports himself and his family. He eats every day. That's pretty significant. And in the end, he dies. Well, see, that's this is the point he's making. I mean, obviously, what you're saying is right, but Solomon is looking at this from the vantage point of you're living it. Why are you doing all this? Why are you working so hard? Because he's going to keep, he will bring this up a couple dozen times because you're going to die. Why, why do all this? Why work hard? Why even, why even take, why even take those? Well, I've got to feed my family. Why? Okay, pursue that. You'll blow your brains out. Well, that's exactly why the suicide rate in the United States is at all time high. Because what Solomon is saying is exactly the point. People are doing all of this and they have absolutely no fulfillment, no meaning. So he, he then goes, he, he adds to this a second piece of, of evidence. Everything, and, and make sure you understand why he's saying this, the vantage point, everything is transitory, impermanent, seemingly insignificant. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, what he said, another way of saying this, life's just a cycle. It's just an endless cycle. I mean, everybody just keeps doing the same thing. You just go round and round and round and round. Oh, yeah, your jobs are different. The times are different. Technology is different. But listen, I can show you cuneiform text from 3400 BC in ancient Sumer. And parents and employers and employees are saying exactly the same thing. Parents, employers, and employees say today. Exactly. It's the same thing. 5,400 years ago, a family in ancient Samaria in a continuum form text are, are complaining that their kids are not obeying them. I mean, does that sound familiar? And this is all Solomon is saying. A generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. The earth doesn't, the earth's here. But the people, it's just, a, it's a cycle. Everybody goes through the same cycle. You live, you're born, you grow up, you get married, you live your life, and you die. Do you know of any human being well, that's a broad statement, but for the most part, isn't that right? Everybody's just going through the same cycle. And Solomon is just saying, he keeps asking, it's just his point. Why do I do this? <laughs> I mean, why, why do I find any meaning in the transitory, impermanent, seemingly insignificant cycle of life? Well, it seems like, too, the Hebrew, the little I know, 
which is minuscule. It seems like the Hebrew, uh, like in the Proverbs, they have a, to make a point, they have a negative, then they have a positive. Well, this is probably the negative. The last few verses are the positive. That's the way they teach. <coughs> and like I say, I'm the biggest dummy in the room, but uh, it seems like uh, that's the way they did. That's why it's so negative. Verse, verses five through seven, he reflects on this, this, this secular, seemingly insignificant imprint. He observes nature. What do you see in nature? The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens a place where it rises. Was there ever a day when the sun didn't rise? No. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, round around goes the wind, and on circuits as the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So what is he doing? I look at nature. I look at the natural world, and I see a meaningless, endless, repetitive cycle. He's not making a value judgment about this. He's not saying that's wrong or evil. He's saying that's the way it is. Human life is just like the nature I observe. Everything's in a cycle. And he keeps asking, what's the purpose of all of this under the sun? And then finally, in terms of this providing evidence that uh, everything's vanity, vanity all is vanity, this gets this gets kind of kind of interesting here. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be what has been done is what will be done and this is a very famous statement that you hear people who don't even know the bible quote it there's nothing new under the sun is there anything which it is said see this is new it has already been already in ages before <clears throat> solomon will say in chapter seven of this book don't say the former days were better than today. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, it's, it's, you know, my dad grew up, he said, Jim, the good old days were much better than today. I said, Dad, you lived through the Depression and World War II, the good old days? He said, well, yeah, I know, but you know, we used to we used to say, right, that's why my dad never threw anything away. I mean, everything, he just kept it. When we had to clean up the house, it was unbelievable. But because he grew up, he didn't throw anything away. He always went, oh, Jim, I'm going to probably use this sometime. He's 91 years old. I said, I might use this someday. Because the fact, but that that's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's what Solomon is saying, listen, is there anything really new under the sun? You and I, you and I, you and I look at a world where there has been technological progress. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very thankful to have been born and to live in an age where there's air conditioning. I mean that. Because when I was a little boy, my parents didn't have air conditioning. Nobody had air conditioning in the 1940s, early 50s. But I remember laying in my bed on the second floor at night so in July, absolutely in a bed of sweat. It was so hot. And you know, there's the, oh my. And then once, once you discover air conditioning and you get 
I never want to, I never want to sleep in an unaired conditioned room again. <laughs> I slept on an air mattress in the basement. There, there you go. Um, I, my wife, my wife, many, many, many summers, they slept outside on the porch. Just because it was much cooler. You know, it's just, well, I don't know what I'm saying. But yeah, here's the point. There's been technological, has it been moral progress? Has there been moral progress for the human race? No. Technology reverses that. The, the, Bible, the Bible keeps giving us this three-letter word, sin. Humanity has not made one inch of moral progress through its technology. We can sin faster. We can sin faster. <laughs> and more thoroughly. And more and completely. More and more comprehensively. <laughs> so what Solomon is driving at is every, everything around us is part of this cycle. And we're caught in this cycle. And we can't, why am I doing what I'm doing? If, box And so, what time is it? Okay, now, one more, he's concluding this evidence, it's in Pap, uh, uh, verse 11. Based on what he started with, verse eight and nine and 10, now 11, there is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. I studied under a man who was actually quoting another historian. Uh, he said, he would say this to us over and over again. The one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. Yeah. And that's just, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a summary of the point he's making. There's no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come out. And he's going he's gonna to drive this home in, in uh, chapter three, I think it is, or actually chapter four. But anyway, uh, he's going to say, okay, you do a lot of good things now. Will your great grandchildren really remember you? Will your great grandchildren really remember what you did? You know, I I I, I know a, a man here in, in, in the city, very good friend of mine. He's the son of, of one of the wealthiest men in the city. His dad has passed away, but his father's name is on an awful lot of buildings in this city. A lot of other things, and so. Uh, Okay, I'll look at, can I finish my thought? That distracted me now. Uh, oh, I know. He and I were talking. Uh, he's in my one of my classes. But he and I were talking one time over lunch a while back. And he said, you know, based on what we've been studying in Ecclesiastes, in 100 years, some of those buildings will still be standing. But most people will say, who is that man? Who, who, why is this building named after him? That's what Solomon is saying here. You do a lot of, quote, good, close quote, things now. In two or three generations, people may see that good thing, but who, who, who is this? Who is this person? Was this person really that important? See, that's one of the reasons why, and this, this started, uh, that's a fairly recent development in human history. We started building statues to people. We were, that's why we started building statues, so that people would not forget that person. Oh, this is what that person looked at. Yeah, that's what that person looked like. Now, Daddy, who is he? What did he do? 
You know, and we have statues of Lincoln everywhere because everybody agrees he was arguably the best president we've ever had. And we have, we have a very good idea of what he looked like. And so the, that's, people know Lincoln, they know about, but they don't really know Lincoln, but they know Lincoln, they know what he did. He was the president of the Civil War. We have lots of statues of George Washington, lots of statues of Thomas Jefferson, the big memorials down Washington, D.C. to these things. That's purposeful and that's intentional. Because if we didn't do that, everybody forget who they are. Because there's no remembrance of former things. We have to be so intentional and so decisive to force people to remember. Now listen to me. God is into memorials. Isn't he? You study the book of Joshua. Seven times in the book of Joshua, there's an instruction to build a memorial. Why? This is what it says. So that your children and your grandchildren will ask, why, Daddy, is this here? What's the greatest memorial for you and me as Christians? The Lord's table. Because we engage in the Lord's table, whatever your church and tradition, however often you observe it. But anyway, what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. It's the same language here. Because Jesus knew if we don't constantly remember all that he's done for us on the cross and through his resurrection, we'll forget. There's constant object lessons and memorials. That's why it is really important. I think it is anyway. It's really important in our churches to have, and it doesn't have to be statues, but ways in which we're memorializing very important aspects of our faith. That's why almost, and people who aren't Christians, you have a cross. Cross is a nice piece of jewelry. You know, people wear a cross, they have no idea what it means. They just wear it because it's a nice piece of jewelry. But the cross is a symbol. It's a memorial. And for you and me, the cross is a powerful memorial. We don't want to forget that because of, the, because of what the cross represents for us. So what Solomon is saying here is if we want to remember something, we're going to need God's help to remember it. Because it is in remembering that we remember the importance of what happened at that event or that individual. And with Jesus, of course, that's the whole point of the Lord's table. But what Solomon is saying, again, with Box, this is really true. We don't remember anything. I am, I mean, I, my degrees are in history and historical theology. I am just appalled at what in the schools today is not being taught in history. It's, it's awful. I mean, it's, 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 it's an abomination. Our children are growing up, again, another exception depends on where you send your kids to school, but generally speaking, our kids are growing up with no sense of history. You know, there was a, there was a, a oh, I gotta quit here, but there was a, there was a major survey done a, a number of years ago. Uh, I think it was kids from, from 14 to 19. They could not put the Civil War in the right century. Not even give the year, they can't even put it in the right century. <laughs> Which, you know, I just, I found that because they weren't taught it. And I don't know if you follow it, what is generally being taught in history classes, kids do not have, they're not taught history chronologically and sequentially. That's not how they're taught. They don't, they're not taught history like that. So you do units on feminist history. And so I'm going to stop because I'm, I can get really frustrated with that. God doesn't want me to be frustrated with you guys. It's Christmas. Now, look, this is Christmas. Mm-hmm. So I don't, want to, I don't want to add to the 
to the despair that this book brings because it's, it's, a, it's an enlightening book for us because it to force us to do what Solomon did near the end of his life. Keep God in the picture in everything you do. That's what brings meaning to life. Well, I don't know what this is all about, but I'm going to thank you in advance for it. And when I get home, I'll say, Peggy, your name's on this. So open it. So yeah. she, she will do that. So thank you in advance. I want you to have a Merry Christmas. Now, remember, we don't meet next week. We don't meet the week after that. But it will be the 4th of January, I think, mm-hmm. who will we gather. All right? So I'm going to pray if that's all right. And I really do need to get out of here. That's okay. Lord, we're uh, beginning to study the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most uh, profoundly important books in the Old Testament. At least I think it is. It's a reflection on life, a life lived without God in the picture. Solomon will now analyze and analyze and and he'll start to propose a solution. And simply put, it's put God in the picture of everything you do. At that God is God is not a fair weather friend. He is a sovereign Lord of the universe who created everything, sustains everything, <clears throat> and asks us as his as his children. When we put our faith in Christ, we're in the family of God, to remember him in everything we do, to make him a part of everything we do, to be in a 24-7 conversation with him, so to speak, pray without ceasing. All of those things are elements. And Solomon lived lots of his life without doing that. And we are beneficiaries of the lessons he learned. So we want to approach this book honestly. We want to allow your spirit to speak to us through it and just remind us of the importance of keeping you not only at the center of our life, but even in the daily mundane things we do. Paul writes it so wonderfully in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. We want to keep you in the picture of everything we do. We love you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And so in two weeks when we celebrate Christmas, we're remembering what, what, what the incarnation means. The second person of the Trinity adds to his deity. A human being, he becomes the God-man. and will live his life for the express purpose of the cross. And for that, we are eternally significant, eternally grateful, eternally praising you. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us as we celebrate this wonderful season of the year in your son's name.